Welcome to This Could Change Your Mind, the podcast where hot takes meet cold facts, exploring topics from careers to curls. As most people will tell you, One's career path can often be a winding one, with countless uncertainties along the way. Juggling passion, education, and finances on the road to your true career is a growing concern for so many people, especially those young and fresh out of school. In this episode, Najud Al-Maliz talks with a journalism grad and her experience finding her footing in the professional world. Young people today are bombarded with messages on social media about the value of hustling and dreaming big. Instagram is flooded with passion projects and motivational speakers who tell you it's possible to turn your passion into a living. We're made to feel bad for working a job that we don't love or for avoiding risks, but in a world where precarious work is all the more common, do these messages make any sense? Or is following your passion something reserved for people who can afford it? Let's consider the story of a young woman who attempted to chase her dream and learned that the cost might be too steep. Judy Besmeji and I met in my fourth year at Western University in London, Ontario. She was a news editor at the Western Gazette and I was writing for the news section at the time. We bonded over our Syrian heritage and shared love for journalism. And we both left the Gazette with the goal of becoming journalists. After graduating, I was headed to Ryerson University to start my master's in journalism and she registered for a summer broadcast journalism program at Seneca College. It was a very intense uh, certificate. It was about four months, and we did like eight hours of school every day. I wanted to get a job in Toronto uh, at, at one of the media, bigger media organizations after I graduated. Near the end of the program, Judy landed an interview with a media organization in Toronto. That was the dream. But because of her status in Canada, Judy was in need of a work permit. And given the cost of rent in Toronto, she decided to head back to London until she could get her permit in order. I was unemployed for about three or four months at that time. Once I got my work permit, I just wanted any job that I could get. Like I just wanted to be employed as soon as possible. And I had drifted away from journalism during that period of time because I was starting to feel very discouraged about the work, about being able to find a job in London without having to move out to Toronto and having to pay for like rent. And Toronto was very expensive to live in while I was doing my, my, my certificate at Seneca. And that's when I realized just like how much it would cost for me to have to live out there on like, honestly, on like 16 or $17 an hour as a starting journalist or as an intern. So it just started looking less and less feasible at that time. I ended up just getting a job at a medical clinic. I was working as a medical receptionist. I had no idea idea what I was going to do, whether I was going to go back and try to pursue journalism again. I was very passionate about it for a very long time in my life, and it was very difficult for me to consider changing careers at that point. After spending two years in student media and planning a career in news, Judy had to give up what she thought was her dream career. At first, the move away from journalism felt like a failure on her part. 
by the time I graduated university, I had already changed career paths quite a few times. Like my degree was actually in psychology and I started out in genetics. So I really had no idea what I was doing. Like I was all over the place. But when I started working at the Gazette, I felt like that was it. And I was so certain at that time that this is what I would be doing for the rest of my life. So for me to start second guessing that decision after I graduated, like not even a year after I graduated was very difficult for me because it just, it makes you feel a little bit like a failure because for you to be changing career paths within like a few years for like the third time is just, uh, it's, it's kind of like just difficult to accept. You start wondering what you're doing wrong. Eventually, Judy's search for work landed her a position that would inspire a completely new career, one that she would find just as rewarding. After working at the medical clinic for for a few months, the COVID pandemic started and I started finding a lot of like job positions related to mental health in London. And that was the only other thing that I was interested in doing at that time. And because I loved, like I really enjoyed uh, my degree in psychology. So I I got a position as a mental health worker at a new psychotherapy clinic. And from that point, I started seeing what therapy work looks like. And I started developing like a very strong interest in that work. When you're young, you're really trying to figure out who you are and what you want. No one really tells you that process is not very straightforward, like you're just sort of expected to know, but that's not how it works realistically. And and that makes people feel like they're doing something wrong or that they're failing in some way, because the normal thing for you to do is to try out a bunch of different things for you to figure out what you like. Right. So it's it's very natural for you to go from one thing to another and then decide that you don't like it because you have to find out what you don't like for you to find out what you do actually like and what you do want to do. And this is really a lifelong decision, a lifelong commitment that you're going into. And it's not a decision that should be made lightly, but we're forced to make it at a very young age and we're forced to like make very large financial and personal investments into a decision that, that you're going to stick to for the rest of your life. So it doesn't really make sense. Financial problems, financial concerns, they will always take priority. And that might, in a lot of cases, take you off your path. It's just something that a lot of young people are having to juggle. And it's really hard to do it well on the sense of like not having to sacrifice your career or your passion completely just to be, be able to make ends meet while at the same time not going broke and going into like a lot of debt just so you can pursue your passion. And I don't feel like young people are getting a lot of guidance on how to do that in a proper way and how to be able to make that balance in a successful way. Figuring out your career path can be time-consuming. Without a financial cushion to fall back on, wrong turns will cost you a lot. So how can young people like Judy best navigate their careers? I connected with David Bluestein, a psychologist, counselor, and professor at Boston College, to ask this very question. He's dedicated his career to researching work and its psychological impact, and his critique of mainstream career counseling models drove him to develop an alternative framework, the psychology of working. My career has really focused on work. I'm trained as a counseling psychologist, and I started out focusing my research and also my practice work on career development, helping people to make wise, meaningful decisions about their work lives. Around 20 years ago, I 
experience a sense of calling to focus on the work lives of everyone who wants to work, really trying to make the whole psychological study of work and careers much more inclusive. So in the last um, two decades, I have really dedicated myself to developing new theoretical frameworks and new practice ideas to be relevant to the broad expanse of people who work and who want to work. And obviously, this has a great deal of relevance to the crisis we're facing now. What are some of the issues and inequities that you see in mainstream career counseling models that make you feel like they're not inclusive enough? Well, I think mainstream counseling models really work quite well, and they work well for people who have some degree of choice and volition in their lives. Where I see deficits is in the capacity of career counseling to reach out to people for whom work is really very prominently a survival need, where they need to get a job in order to keep themselves going with housing, with food, healthcare. So I think career counseling has not done as good a job in that area. For the most part, the main models of career counseling have focused on helping people to experience a sense of purpose and meaning in their work lives, which are very admirable goals. And in fact, my overarching objective is for for everyone to experience that kind of sense of wonder and amazement in having a job that mean so much to them. So I think that career counseling needed to be more, needed to be critiqued and needed also new models and paradigms. You developed an alternative framework, the psychology of working, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's an alternative framework that focuses on work as opposed to career. Work is, in, in our view, is inclusive of career. And here we're differentiating work from the activities that we do that entail a whole broad array of tasks including caregiving, including work that is for money, including work that is taking care of one's home. And career, we tend to think about as a kind of sequential, organized, hierarchical perspective of one's work life over a lifespan. Taking that approach, how has that changed the way that you provide counseling to people? The counseling approach that I I apply to people in taking a psychology of working approach would be first we would focus on, on their needs, on, the, on what needs are being fulfilled by work and what needs are outstanding. So in psychology of working, I've conceptualized work as meeting three clusters of needs. One is survival and power. Another is social connection and contribution. And the third is self-determination. So I would assess people informally about where, where they're at vis-a-vis their work. And then from that assessment, I would collaborate with the client and try to develop a plan to help them meet some of these needs in their lives. So if their primary need is survival, we might focus on helping them to get a job, but also helping them to figure out ways that they could upgrade their skills, to revamp their skills so they become more marketable, at the same time as scaffolding a vision for the future. So that's a very important part of psychology of working is thinking about the short-term and long-term trajectory for people's work lives. A lot of people, young people, find themselves in this predicament where they're trying to weigh their options. Should they go and take a really low-paying job in hopes of developing this supposed dream career, or should they be more realistic and pursue something that can meet their financial needs and goals? And so for someone like that, for a young person who's navigating that, what's your advice for them? I think that obviously if people need to get their foot in the door with a job or if they have, for example, a young person who's, uh, whose work life is also supporting the family, then clearly there's, there are survival needs that need to be addressed. Um, and I guess the way I would try to help a young person in that context is 
is to think about, okay, what kind of job can I get now that would help to fulfill my needs in my family, but also might help me to explore a new career options for myself, that might help me to develop new skills, that might help me to develop a greater sense of purpose. So I would try to think about the different survival jobs as having a broader meaning. And one of the ways in which I would work with a client in this way is to help them derive some meaning about what their jobs are. Like, let's say in your case, you might have taken a job, maybe working as a barista at a cafe. I don't know if that was, but in that context, you might've learned you like to talk to people. You might've learned that when people have a little time, you love to chat, chat with them and then ask them questions. And then you might've envisioned yourself as saying, yeah, maybe I could be a journalist. So that's one way of kind of integrating the survival jobs with a more of a long-term career planning focus. For someone who's seeking employment, in your view, what are the things that they should look for in work to make sure that they are taking care of themselves and their well-being and getting some sort of satisfaction? Well, that's a great question. If you need to get a job, as you've mentioned, what you're looking for is some kind of stable job. I think precarious work is easier to get these days, like you know, driving for Uber or Lyft or you know, these, I mean, these are, these are platforms that do provide people with a source of income, but they're not ideal jobs. I think if people have some degree of training and education, they could be a little bit more selective. I mean, actually in the world of career counseling, there's this idea of finding a, a career or a job that's a good fit for your personality, for your values, for your sense of who you are. So that would be ideal, is to kind of get a sense of who you are, learn about yourself, via talking to a career counselor or doing some online research, you know, taking some online assessments maybe, talking to, you know, adults in your life who you know well or people you know well who could help you give you a sense of yourself, mirror back your sense of self. And once you have a greater sense of clarity about your identity, then try to find jobs that fit that. But I would try to find a job that not just fits it, but gives you a person an opportunity to grow in terms of skills, in terms of meeting new people, in terms of expanding their vista of their lives. Trying to build a career after graduating from university or college is already stressful enough. But with an ongoing pandemic, new graduates are also facing an economy with high unemployment, uncertainty, and precarity. While changing career counseling models is one way to help solve this problem, Professor Bluestein wants practitioners like himself to take their work to the next level by pushing for political change. Right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. Work is really changing. We're seeing what jobs are being affected and which ones aren't. How do you see work changing in the long run? That's a great question. And that's actually one of the directions of my near-term research agenda, which is I would like to organize, I'm trying to organize a group of colleagues to think seriously about what can we as counselors and psychologists add to the conversation about how we need to rebuild work as an institution. So I think what we've realized in this pandemic is that there are many aspects of work that are broken or that they were close to being broken and that within a few weeks of the pandemic, I, I actually sometimes call the pandemic the great, the great revelator. It helped to reveal these disjunctures within work, the kind of brokenness of work. And I think we're at a point where we need to really rethink what work needs to be like. I mean, I've heard President Biden in the U.S. talk about rebuilding work. I think we need to rebuild the institution of work. And some of the ideas I have would be things like developing a workers, a document of workers' rights, workers' human rights, 
And some of that actually exists in the UN Human Rights Declaration and in other, other multinational initiatives, but also re restoring the power of labor unions, rebuilding worker protections, um, trying to regulate precarious and gig work, increase the minimum wage, which is a big issue here in the U.S., and basically try to restore regulations to the world of work. And those regulations were really dismantled during the last 50 years of this neoliberal economic movement. So I think, I think our society needs to rebuild the institution of work. The premise I have is that there's more than enough work for people to do, and there's more than enough wealth in our world for people to be able to earn a, a decent, sustainable living. I have a book that I wrote, came out right before the pandemic, The Importance of Work in an Age of Uncertainty. And it's interesting that I started to get a lot of interview requests based on that book because people thought it was about the pandemic, but it came out in 2019. But in some ways, I foreshadowed what happened because in this book, which was actually based on a very intensive qualitative study of 58 working people and also unemployed people in the U.S., I was able to discern that the institution of work was broke, was broken, that people were feeling very fragile, very uncertain, that the experience of uncertainty began to be reflected in a sense of people feeling that the work environment was eroding and that this sense of erosion was also mirrored in their own inner psyches so that people also felt a fragmentation and a great deal of anxiety about work. So in some sense, the book that I wrote um, kind of identified the fault lines that became massively apparent literally by the end of March last year. I mean, I was always struck by within three weeks of us locking down in the United States, there were tens of you know miles and miles of cars waiting for, for food. That was in three weeks. It was it's remarkable. Maybe in Canada, things might have been more sustainable because of a better safety net. Yeah, um, there's definitely been a lot of struggles here too. Like that's interesting that you're pointing out that, you know, when you hear the erosion of work, you think of it in the economic context, but here you're also linking this to people's psychological well-being. Yes. And so can you explain that a little bit more, like how poor working conditions, precarious work, uh, poor wages affects people's mental health and how that might be affecting our society as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually a lot of research on this, but the the... the Takeaway message is that um, having sustainable, decent work, dignified work is integral to our mental health. Um, first of all, human beings are not that comfortable with that much uncertainty. I mean, in many ways, we developed our species, we evolved <clears throat> to avoid this kind of uncertainty. You know, think about the development of agriculture, the development of technologies. It was done in a way because people didn't want to get up every day in the, in the, savannah of our ancient past and figure out how they're going to survive. So there's a kind of, you know, it's kind of in our DNA to want to have some stability. And when work becomes unstable, we feel it. We feel it psychologically. Research literature, for example, tells us that when people are long-term unemployed of six months or more, they're twice as likely to suffer from mental health problems than are people who, who are working or who have shorter-term unemployment. So these, these kind of research findings tell us that work is really central to our well-being and mental health. And people who are anxious about work, I mean, it affects different aspects of their overall well-being and psychological welfare.
could be anxiety, could be depression, could be increase in substance abuse, loneliness. I mean, we could just talk to our friends during the last year and we would get a litany of what these problems are. Since you're American, I feel inclined to ask you about this idea of the American dream. You know, as a Canadian, I always hear, you know, American politicians saying, if you work hard, you can do whatever you want. That's the promise of America. And so in your view, given that you research work, do you think the American dream is dead? I'm not sure if it was ever really alive. I would say that there are elements of the American dream that have worked for people who have privilege in this country, uh, particularly people who are white, people who've come to this country as part of an elite group of immigrants. So I say this, it's a complicated response. Let me say this, that there's a distance. Here I'm gonna quote from Bruce Springsteen because I've heard him say it in interviews. I don't wanna take this idea, um, which is that there's a distance between the American story and the American dream. I may not have all of the words correct in his analogy, but there is a big distance between what we have as part of our mythology and what the country actually has offered people. That said, America has at many times been a place where people have been able to come to this country. I think of my grandparents um, from Europe, Eastern European Jewish people. This was before the Holocaust, but they, they experienced tremendous oppression and poverty and, and marginalization. And, you know, I feel very indebted that, that America gave all four of my grandparents who were born in Europe within like 10 years. It was a period between 1880 and 1924 where there was a huge migration from Eastern and Southern Europe. So there are ways in which America has supported immigrants. And, you know, there's also an, a perspective that they needed workers then. I mean, there was a kind of economic reason why they opened up the faucet of immigrants. So, I mean, I guess I, I feel like the American dream is, is an aspiration and it's not a reality here. And I think it's, it's actually, if you think about this, and I'm just pre-associating here, is perhaps the American dream is part of what has made people more frustrated here, that they've expected, you know, a land of plenty and streets paved with gold and economic security, and it hasn't, hasn't been the case for many people particularly those who have paid the biggest price, uh, the descendants of, our, of slaves, the migrants who come up from Central and South America and Mexico, the Native American and indigenous peoples. They have paid the greatest price and they frankly deserve, they deserve a stake of the American dream. As Professor Bluestein points out, the pandemic has highlighted the failings of our economies quite clearly. But given that these underlying political and economic problems won't be fixed overnight, young people need to know how to best navigate work today. Maybe the answer is less hustling and more financial planning, skills building, and self-care. So stop scrolling on Instagram, unfollow Gary V, and start investing in yourself. That was Najud Al-Mali's piece on career planning. Join us in the next episode where we'll discuss the natural hair movement.